Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 88 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I am here in Vomitorium South, down in the bunker. Yes, we're in a new location, aren't we? A new location, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling tonight, Dave? I'm doing well, Jeff. It's a, it's a delight. It's a pleasure. It's a gaudium to be back at it with you this evening. Yes. Yeah, we've been away from it. From a, It feels like, it feels like a, a bit of a spell. I think it's about 10 days, 10 maybe days. even almost two weeks. Yeah. I know the audience was waiting with a bated breath or bait-like breath. I never understood that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to be some word I don't understand. Baited. But what does that mean? I don't know. It must be uh, derived from a verb of some sort, because who wants um, breath like bait? Bait. Yeah, it's got to be something. It's got to be something else. Yeah, definitely. I've I've never liked that phrase. I haven't either. But they're waiting to hear what we're going to say about uh, Virgil and his Aeneid. Yes, they are. Uh, but I think they'd also like to hear uh, about what you've been up to the last few days. You've been at the uh, uh, the Latin... Uh, the colloquium. The colloquium. You, you keep calling it, uh, with more than your typical derision, <laughs> the jamboree. I, got, I, I, I was, I was excited on. to go to a jamboree. Listen right? to how you already sound <laughs> defensive. <laughs> Big shirtless Ron. <laughs> Yeah. Did he attend the, he the, uh, the, the colloquium? Uh, the colloquium. I'm sorry. The colloquium Latinum. See, I can't say it now. The colloquium Latinum Istivum. Yes. Yeah. And so tell us about it. How did it go? I think you should explain to the audience, please, the big shirtless Ron reference first. <laughs> that comes from some old Simpsons uh, episode where there was the show within the show was something like Yeehaw. Yes, they were making fun of the old Hee-haw Yeehaw. Yeehaw, right. Sure. And so they had, uh, uh, this was, he was part of the cast of characters that just kind of flashed on the screen. There was Hip Diddler. And then big shirtless Ron, <laughs> and that's been something that we've thrown back and yeah, forth over the he years. Was, he was there for the ladies, right? That was the idea. Yeah, it yeah. can't be all uh, male eye candy. Was the notion? Yes, exactly. Big exactly. shirtless Ron. <laughs> right, right. He was not at the Latinum. Okay, the colloquium Latinum Istivum. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it went great. We had uh, ten individuals, ten students, and myself, and then. Uh, a lovely hospitality staff made up of members of my family, and uh, we Latined for five days. Wow, five days. It was intense. It was intense. We had six hours of instruction per day. Okay. We began on Monday with Cicero. We read a couple of his letters, one to Pompey, uh, another one to um, an individual I'm not remembering right now, uh, and then we read a portion of his Deo Ficiis, in which he's telling the story of Themistocles and Aristides and their dealings with Persians. Then Tuesday, we moved on to St. Augustine, and we read portions of his De Agona Cristiano, The Christian Contest. Hmm. That was quite good. It's um, deliberately written in easy Latin. Really? Yes. By the man himself. Augustine wrote it to try to make it uh, approachable, and so there's less of the uh, high-flown rhetoric for which Augustine is deservedly famous. Right, right. Interesting. And so was this, was this uh, conducted in spoken Latin? We did or? a little bit of that, okay. but not a lot, honestly. Uh, we were, you know, read a little bit, translate a little bit, discuss. Um, I got a lot of grammatical questions. I got a lot of questions about vocabulary and um, did some analyzing and, and so forth with the sentences, little little diagramming. Yeah. And uh, just a wonderful, wonderful uh, group of uh, folks getting together, coming from all over the country, actually. We had some individuals from the Carolinas. 
Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> one individual has a, just a really charming North Carolina accent. Imagine him reading Cicero. Oh, I, I, lo- I love imagining that. It was that. great. Yeah. And uh, a woman joined us from uh, Portland, Oregon. We had some folks from Illinois and Missouri and Indiana, some Michiganders. So we really uh, ran the gamut. Fantastic. Now, are these, were these all um, Latin per diem students of yours or is this... Uh, yes. Uh, most most no, of these folks, go yeah. ahead. No, it, or was it going to open to anybody that would, wanted to sign up? Right. Well, right? it was open to anyone. Yeah. And um, I have to say demand a little bit exceeded supply. So I had to turn away a few individuals, but we're planning to do it again next year. Fantastic. Well, that's yep. a, a good problem to have. It was say. excellent. Yeah. And then uh, can I go on with the rest of the week? Yeah, please. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so, so what else did you read and so study? So Wednesday, yeah. Wednesday was St. Thomas Aquinas, and we did some of his Summa Theologica, mm-hmm. you know, only a tiny portion. And um, if any of the audience has uh, read any Aquinas before, um, you know, Cicero is a person who doesn't always have something profound to say, but he always says it brilliantly. Yeah. Um, Aquinas is someone who always has something profound to say, but it is written in very workmanlike Latin. Is that right? It's very flat. Uh, I don't think it has any charm, but it's profound. There's now, does it depth. have to? I don't want to go I'll go off in too much sure. of a tangent, but does it have to do more with kind of Tom, old Tommy himself, or was it uh, that Latin by the time he was writing had kind of degraded to a certain degree? It's a combination of both, really. So not so much uh, Tommy himself, you might say, but that he was not interested in putting any charm in what he's writing. Okay. It's, it's very uh, direct, plain, simple. He's interested in the ideas. There's a little bit of style here and there. Yeah. Uh, but the second point is the genre, you know, of, of theology at the time had no charm. Um, it was just written in a very plain manner. Yeah. This was pre-Renaissance. So right. depending on one's perspective, um, I think it's a Latin that is not nearly as pleasing. You know, as I said to the class at the end of the day, I really like what Aquinas is saying because it's fascinating, but I find myself wanting to read Ovid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, maybe this is just a, a moral weakness on my part, but I, I like being entertained sure, by literature. Sure, of course, right. That's, uh, and, you know, Aquinas is good for a really, um, a really good think. Yeah. Uh, philosophical and theological issues and a great theologian. Now, so. you, I, I, I know nothing about like the biography of, of Aquinas, but do you know, does that style of Latin fit with kind of what we know of his persona? Was he, was he kind of dry and to the point or? or I don't do, think we could probably make that. Make that uh, kind of connection. No, I don't, I don't know. So 13th century, 1225, 1275, um, the angelic doctor, you know, and he, he taught in Paris and very important figure. Someone I yeah. admire a lot. Yeah, yeah. Thursday, we go on to Erasmus. Oh, we've and, talked about Erasmus yes, on this, on this we, show. We were reading his work called De Copia. And that was a tough one to uh, translate, de copia. Now, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means abundance, plenty, supply. Yeah. But how are you going to get that out um, as a title when he's talking about de copia, rerum et verborum, right? So an abundance of subjects and of words. Mm-hmm. One of the suggestions was imagination, uh, because what he's trying to he's trying to teach you how to have a mind that's full of both ideas. And then the words to express them. Okay, okay. And of course, you know, Erasmus, he can't write a single sentence without showing off. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Every, yeah. Everything is just 4th of July, constantly. It's verbal fireworks all the time. Did the students enjoy that aspect of it? Or? It was exhausting. Exhausting. So I think they did enjoy it and they did admire it. But some of them said, um, you know, it was very ecumenical. We had um, about half Protestants, half Catholics. Hmm. Um, I, as it turned out, this was not in any way... Not in any way a requirement of the week, but they all turned out to be, you know, uh, persons of faith. Okay. 
Um, they really liked Aquinas, you know, because of the theology and philosophy. Sure. Erasmus, it's the kind of thing you, you know, you admire, like you might admire a great athlete, mm-hmm. right? But if you if you watch a great athlete uh, going through their paces all the time, doing things that you feel like, I could never do that. Yeah. It's impressive for a while. Yeah. But then it's a little bit exhausting. Exhausting. Kind of reminds me of... Um, and so I, you know, I play I play guitar. Right. And so if you go to see a phenomenal guitarist, right, you you're, you're in awe, but it also kind of makes you feel like deficient. Deficient, right? <laughs> yeah. It also feels like like that's that's fabulous. I'm never going to be able to touch that. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now, was yeah. there one day left? Yeah, Friday. Friday. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we read a little portion of uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Okay. The 1559 edition. So I was hoping we would get um, we would get to. Uh, chapters seven, eight, and nine of book three. Yeah, um, we only finished chapter six. So this is the because I knew it was going to be an ecumenical event based on the the folks who had um, signed up. I tried to pick something from Calvin that I was interested in, and he was the one advertised, right? So everybody knew in advance. Right. This is what you're getting into. You know, um, I tried to pick something that was a little less polemical, mm-hmm. um, a little more ecumenical, and so this portion of the Institutes is his view of uh, the Christian life. Okay, and um, and his Latin is also just really exalted. I mean, it's it's fantastic stuff. Can you go go toe to toe with Erasmus. Yes, you okay. know his his early um, and audience. We will get to Virgil. Hang in there. <laughs> uh, Calvin's early ambition was to be the French Erasmus. You know that oh. that was his goal. Didn't ever work out, but um, a good stylist. So yeah. just some fascinating Latin, and we had these delicious meals. Uh, that uh, our hospitality staff, you know, my wife and daughter, uh, they they cooked, and we had um, we had some volunteers come in and help out too, some some folks from church, and uh, just a really good time. Fantastic, really good time. That's great. And so you're going to do this again next year. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We had coffee, adult beverages. We had uh, delicious desserts, and just lots of real uh, conviviality. You know, literary friendships around the fireplace, things like that. The the, uh, the fire pit. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Yeah, we try to get you out there, Winkle. Yeah, I try to get you. You were busy though. I was very busy this past I heard, week. Yeah. I heard you were performing this past week. I did. My I have a buddy and I had an acoustic duo gig at a place out in Holland, Michigan, and it was a it was a ton of fun. I hadn't mm-hmm. had not performed in a long time, and so yeah, it was great to do that again. Were they yeah. holding lighters and throwing roses at the stage? Or? Didn't, uh, nothing of the sort. Okay. Right. It's it's often as these gigs go, it's a, the first kind of half of it is kind of pulling teeth. Okay. And then by the end, you got the people all kind of get involved. And right. and right when it's time to be done, you run out of songs. There you go. Everybody's having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Well, I guess that takes the place of the shout out, yes, doesn't it? It does, right? <laughs> because we got no uh, shout outs to out. Yeah. So, uh, again, to the audience, an invitation to, to write in. Uh, if you want a shout out, or if, even if you don't want a shout out, you know, let us know right. uh, what, what you like. Tell us something about yourself. We'd love to kind of plug you on the air, right? So, um, so in place of a shout out, um, should we talk about our latest sponsor? Yes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Pop City Popcorn. Okay. And uh, located down in Kalamazoo, mm-hmm. uh, of all the Mazoos in Michigan, I would say that's probably the best. It's my favorite Mazoo. Yes. Yep. And uh, can you tell us, Jeff, a little bit about what you enjoy about their product? I like the their their savory stuff. Right. I love the uh, the Parmesan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like you know even I'm not a huge uh, kind of sweet tooth guy, but the their two way drizzle. Yes. Um, it's fantastic. It was the best kind of you know caramel and chocolate chocolate popcorn I've ever had in my life. It it's was, fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah. What about you? Uh, the bacon cheddar. It's definitely a home run, mm-hmm. right? 
hit it right out of the uh, the rink. That was just a fantastic. Uh, hit that puck. That hit the puck out of the rink. I'm trying to mix metaphors here, Winkle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you caught that? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, fantastic. Um, yeah. Just a line drive right into the end zone. Uh, yeah. The um, the bacon cheddar, absolutely delicious. Yeah. The movie theater butter, also very good. Oh, I, I like that one too. Right. Right. So you know anything that you, you're gonna you find on the shelf in the store, this just blows it away. That's right. Uh, the ingredients they're, they're using natural, real ingredients, and it's um, yeah, it's it's so flavorful. My boys love it. My wife yeah. loves it. Uh, it's great stuff. So Dave, if if our listeners right. are interested in this, what should they do? Well, instead of picking up a, a bag of that, what's it called? That fatty pop, I Fa- think. Fatty pop. Fatty yeah, pop. Exactly. Or uh, you know the the uh, jacker crack. The I jacker crack. The one yep. you mentioned. They should go to popcitypopcorn.com, mm-hmm. popcitypopcorn.com, and uh, they should browse the catalog, and then they should enter this coupon code. A-N-POP-20. Is that right, Jeff? A-N-POP-20, yes. Yes, P-O-P-2-0, and what do they get? They'll get 20% off their first order. Right. Now, you might be wondering, listener, come on, guys. We wait for that wonderful bumper music and then to have the ads in the middle of the program. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yes. Why are we mixing it up like this? Right. Why are we mixing it up, Jeff? Well, we want to, at the top of the show, uh, give a plug to this this great sponsor. We want to give a a heads up to the audience. I I really think they'll like this stuff. They will really like it. So, you know, we're just asking you, check it out. Check it out, please. All right. And I think, Jeff, you've got the opening quote again this week, don't you? Yes. This comes from the same article um, that we had our opening quote from the, the previous episode. This is from David Quint's Painful Memories, Aeneid 3 and the Problem of the Past, in which um, I really like his argument that uh, what Aeneas and his crew need to really deal with is, is leaving Troy behind, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. They need to let go and create something completely new. Okay. And so throughout book three, they find themselves kind of encountering elements of, the, of their past and this draw back to Troy, but everything that fate has in store for them kind of pushes them to the next piece. Okay, so this yeah. is David Quint. This is uh, came out in the Classical Journal in 1982. Yeah, so 40 you know years ago. 40 years, Yeah, which in classics terms is like a moment ago. Yeah, right? yes, yesterday, <laughs> right. Current scholarship. Right. So let's have the quote, please. Yeah, well, one more setup to this. Okay, um, sorry. So I don't know if you had this experience in grad school where you would like be reading something and you get a great idea for an article. Oh. And you say, this is, this is fantastic. I'm sure nobody's thought of it before. Right. And then you find out, Oh yeah, like twelve people have written exactly. Out this, right? Yeah. So when I was reading book uh, book three, the scene which we'll get to, where uh, Aeneas encounters they find Andromache is still alive and mm-hmm. she's remarried and and she's living in Greece. Um, I thought as I was reading the episode, I said, this this reminds me of the underworld scene in Odyssey eleven, and I think Virgil wants to see this as kind of a uh, a nod towards that. And um, of course, um, uh, I thought this is a great idea. They'd make a great article. You're and thinking I, I could write my dissertation on this. I could write another dissertation. I could. This would be great. Right. This, this is so. This is so um, groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. And then I look did, at now. Did you call the Harvard Classics Department and say you might want to just you know put me on hold right now because I got this article kind of coming out and you're going to want to recruit me? Well, they've blocked my number. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but then I read this Quint article and sure enough, yeah. uh, this Dave uh, already had it. So, the, yeah. so I can answer your question. Yes. yes. That happened to me all the time. Uh, it's frustrating. It is frustrating. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's, so. how's the saying go? Um, uh, nil sub sola, nil noe sub sola, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun, yeah. Right. I remember um, uh, professors at Northwestern, I would 
you know, float these ideas. Right. And they would often say, that sounds great, but I can almost guarantee you somebody's done it. Already. Yeah. Right. Often they would say probably some German did it. German. Yeah, exactly. So this <laughs> is probably a German dissertation from 1869. <laughs> exactly. Go, go check on it. You know, right. 400 pages. Right. All right. Let's get to the quote. Um, where Quint talks about this very thing that I was, I, I thought that I thought I had nailed down. So he writes, Andromache begins to play the role of a shade in the Odyssey when she asks whether Ascanius is living or whether he is living up to the valorous examples of Aeneas and Hector. Her questions and her concern for the surviving child who carries on the family line recall the moments in Odyssey 11 when Agamemnon asks Odysseus whether Orestes is still alive and Achilles asks of Neoptolemus or Pyrrhus, as, as he's often called in the right. Indian, has grown up to be a warrior in the family mold. The pathetic situations are similar. The dead Homeric heroes and the past of system Dramaki inquire after the offspring who embody their hopes in a future they cannot share. This similarity might appear to be merely coincidental, were it not for the fact that Andromache has only seven lines earlier described the fates of Orestes and Neoptolemus. And here we get the Latin. Ast il ereptai magno flammatus amore, Conjugus et scelarum furiis acatatus orestes, excipit incertum patriasque obtroncit at aras. Very nice. And he goes on, both of these sons have come to bad ends. Orestes, himself pursued by the furies of matricide, has killed Neoptolemus. So we find out that Orestes has killed Pyrrhus, who we we talked about in book two, you know, has this uh, horrific scene where he kills Priam at the, right. at the altar. Right. So draw this out for me a little bit here, because mm-hmm. I... Because you know this exalted prose that, that Quint has, he's losing me a little bit here. Okay, can you can you connect the dots? All right, so um, I think that I mean what I what I took away from it is that I mean not only do do the details of that scene seem to be a kind of um, um, uh, a mimicking of Odyssey eleven, so right? We, we as we'll see when we see, first see Andromache, she's she's making a libation to the dead. She's trying to call up the ghost of Hector. Um, so there's that Homeric nod, but I think that. In with along with Quint's um, overarching thesis, is Andromache stuck? She cannot leave Troy behind. She's remarried. She's in the deuce place, but she's still obsessed with her past. She's still okay. obsessed with Hector, and so she is a cautionary tale for Aeneas. You can't get trapped like this, hmm. right? And so she's stuck in. She's stuck in Homer. She's stuck in this loop. She's stuck okay. in Troy, and um, Aeneas, I think, recognizes implicitly. He's starting to get it more and more that. He can't just stop at these places. He can't try to recreate Troy because that gets you right. nowhere. Let it go, man. Let it go, man. That's what Andromache is telling him. Exactly. Now, she doesn't tell him explicitly. No, she does not tell him explicitly. But that, and I think that's part of uh, Virgil's genius. Right. Is that he leaves a lot of this stuff kind of um, just just under the surface. Suggestive that right. you're supposed to pick up on your own. Right. So I think, as, you know, as we saw um, in the last episode, there's lots of prophecies, you know, various, um, um, you know, uh, Seers are prophesying that the, there's a harpy that prophesies, and all of these these prophecies kind of build on each other. And in the scene with Andromache, with her with uh, Helenus, the, the the seer, her new husband, right? Um, his prophecy kind of puts all the last pieces into place. So I think through all of these these prophecies building on each other, they're pushing Aeneas to a realization that he has to let go of the past. And what he's the new thing he's going to build is not going to be just a kind of a um, a simulacrum of Troy. It's going right. to be something completely new. Right. Now, in that, uh, well said, in that uh, that terrible, terrible movie that we uh, reviewed, you know, this was episode seven or eight. Oh, Troy? Troy, the movie. Yes. Uh, more bods than gods. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, nobody really likes that episode. We the pa- numbers suggest that nobody likes yeah, that should episode. Should we pause and shed a tear? <laughs> uh, in that movie, nevertheless, the character of Andromache is played by Saffron Burroughs. 
Zephyr? I don't know yes, that actress. She's a wonderful actress. Okay. Yep. And uh, I, I was very pleased with that casting because um, Andromache is one of the most sympathetic characters in the Iliad. Oh, without right? a doubt. Right. Book six at the um, the gates, you know, the, the sky and gates. And uh, she, she played that role really well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now she's living her, her next life, right? As you're saying here, yes. here in Aeneid 3. Right. And telling, just to some, and telling Aeneas, uh, without saying it explicitly, the past is dead. You have to move on. Right. And it's this really weird mix of of joy and horror, right? Uh, that To kind of discover Andromachly alive and to discover kind of this, another clan of Trojans that escaped and has kind of built something new. Right. At, 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 at the beginning is something kind of wondrous and um, this, this kind of joyous reunion. Right. But quickly it descends into something quite... I wouldn't say not sinister, but something really quite... It's disturbing. Disturbing, yeah. Dysfunctional, Dysfunctional. maybe we should say. Yeah. Hmm. So as we get into it then, yeah. <laughs> here a third of the way through the episode, right? Uh, what are we going to give the people? What's some island hopping, coast hopping? Lots of uh, lots of more coast hopping. I mean, they're making their way towards Italy, right? Um, but eventually, you know, so we'll, we'll see. They make it to Italy, but then they get blown off course. Correct. Of course, uh, the audience will remember that Aeneas is telling this whole story as a flashback. Yes, he's in Carthage, and so we have to get the the the, the crew to Carthage, right? And that's what happens by the end of this book. Yeah. So we began at the beginning of book. Book two, he's in the big hall, and uh, Dado says, tell us the whole story of everything that's happened. I want to hear it all. Yeah. So book two, Fall of Troy, and here we are deep in book three. Deep in book three. And I understand that um, you're growing to love book three a little bit. You know, I am. I am. You know, I think I, said, I mentioned in the last episode, I thought my first reaction, this is kind of filler. I mean, how many sacrifices, how many libations, how many prayers do we need to? We get it already. You're pious. Right. Right. But... Man, by the end, I reread the chapter, uh, book three uh, earlier today, and I really came around on it. This is brilliant stuff, and you kind of see how all the pieces mm. Virgil kind of puts together and builds on these pieces. Okay, it, it's 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 amazing. So we've got Thrace and Polydorus. We covered that last time. Yep. Delos and Crete. Yep. The island of the Strophides. With the harpies. Yeah, the terrible harpies. Mm-hmm. Now Hellenus and Andromache. That's what we got now. Yep. And now we're coming up on Sicily. Yeah. The Cyclopes and Acestes. Right. We start to get some of this. Um, uh, even I even came around to this kind of this fan service, right? You okay. know, we're, we're, I'm not familiar with that term. So fan service. So for ex- for example, um, did you happen to see the the the? Um, you know, the answer is going to be no, okay. no matter what you say. So Dave, you, try did, it. you did not see the latest the Ghostbusters film. No. Right? Okay. All right. <laughs> it was actually not bad with Paul Rudd. I like Paul Rudd. Oh, he's uh, Ant Man. Ant Man. Yeah. Yes. He's very funny, funny guy. Very funny guy. So they're bringing back, you know, the, the Ghostbusters franchise. Right. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. But at the end, uh, who shows up but um, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson, who played oh. three of the Ghostbusters. They couldn't get the fourth one? He's dead. That would be tough. Yes. Yeah, All right. But it is called Ghostbusters, so you... <laughs> So they could have they could have digitally inserted Never mind. <laughs> oh, that would have been really creepy. But they show up at the end, and it's one of those moments where the audience is like, you're almost get prompted to to cheer like there are the guys and so and a lot of reviewers found it you know cheesy what do reviewers know you know the the movie's not made for them no exactly right and so they kind of derided it as fan service it's Mm. like this only of course you're going to expect them to be there so they, they get their cameo at the end and so I thought this too, where you know uh, we have you know Aeneas is now treading on Homeric territory, right? And he's running into the, some of the same monsters. We get a glimpse of the Cyclops yes. and, and stuff. And what uh, my again my first reaction was like a reviewer, ah, cheesy fan service. But right. no, 
I love how Virgil just kind of keeps all of the men on the edges of things. That's right. He doesn't take them into the Cyclops cave. If he had done that, I would have said, no, 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 back to the drawing board. It's suggestive only. It's very suggestive. That's that- what Ovid does, though. He does what you wouldn't like. He says, okay, Virgil did it tastefully. I'm just going to... <laughs> blow out all the stops. Right, exactly, right. Well, I mean, Ovid can get away with it right. um, because he's so entertaining. Right. But I thought Virgil kind of did this very artfully where mm. he just kind of takes us around the edge. There's this suggestion of it, right? Yeah. The difference also, if I, if I may say, yeah. is that um, there's almost 700 years or more between Homer and Virgil. Yeah, oh yeah. So, you know, to our example of Ghostbusters, it's it's partly just too early yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Right. 600 years from now, Dan Aykroyd shows up. That's going to be impressive. That is impressive. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think 600 years from now, I'd still, I would still want to see Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah. okay. Right. So I think, Jeff, we've covered pretty adequately the um, Andromache and Hellenus episode. Yeah, there's a couple more things I want to say. Okay, all yeah. right. Yeah. But uh, just a little bit prior to that, we skipped over something really interesting. We did. Which is the sailing past um, the island of Ithaca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is great. Uh, and so um, there's the, the, the crew is sailing. Uh, they've just left the Harpies. And so they're kind of sailing up the, the uh, northwest uh, coast of, right. of, uh, of, of Greece. Right. And uh, Virgil takes a moment to tell us that they sail past Ithaca and they recognize it as the, the, you know, the homeland of Ulysses, yes. of, of Odysseus. Yeah. And how do they respond? They, they, they shout curses. <laughs> I think, that, I think that, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, at least in my opinion, not, not uh, a little funny. Yes. Yeah. No doubt. So I got the chance to visit there. Um, I didn't go to Ithaca or Zacynthus, but I was on the island of Kefalonia. This was That's uh, right nearby, isn't 2014. it? 2014, yes. Yeah. I, I saw Ithaca and I saw the sunrise over Ithaca, rosy-fingered dawn one Fantastic. morning. Fantastic. Yeah. So that was really nice. I don't imagine you hurled curses in its general direction, though, did you? I was tempted. <laughs> I was tempted. You know how I curse in the mornings. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, right. But we want to give the, the people a little bit of the Latin there? Yeah, yeah. Take, okay. uh, take us there. So this is uh, uh, line 272 is where it starts. E fugimus scapulus Ithacae la ertia regna et terraltri camsai wexe cramor ulixi. That's the part that you want. Ulixi, yeah, yeah. yeah. The or we curse him. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so I mean, so you know, in the timeline of the story, um, it, we imagine that at the same moment, Odysseus and his men are still lost. Right. right. Not yet returned to Ithaca, um, but the Trojans know him well enough and know this 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 land this area well enough that they know okay. We that's that's Ulysses' homeland, and we know what he did to us. Right. And so they're 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 shouting curses. They're maybe maybe mooning the island, perhaps. Nah, he's not there though. He's not there though. But I don't think so. He's still wandering. He's still got a lot of wandering to do. Maybe another six seven years yeah. to follow the timeline. Yeah. Exactly. So they um they make their way up the coast of of uh, of Epirus, right? Which um which if I remember talking to you, uh, I remember you talking about that if you were saying that you know if you were to Spends like a, a long time in Greece, you know, living right. there. Um, that this is the area that you would choose. Yeah. Well, yeah. we were there. Remember, in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, with Christiana, when we went up to the Necromantion and Dodona, right? Yeah. And I just thought that Epirus was uh, just the most beautiful part of Greece. Yeah. Just phenomenal because you have. I'm told this is kind of rare. You have a place where there's mountains and the sea. And the mountains come down almost to the sea, right? Yeah. Usually there's a slope, you know, there's a descending plain. But uh, Epirus was just breathtaking. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you're kind of you're way, you're 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 far away from Athens. You're That's far right. away from kind of the the urban the hot spots such as they are in Greece. Yes. And so it would be a, a much more um, uh, placid experience. Yeah, idyllic. Yeah, yeah. 
So this is where we are. Okay. And this is where they stumble upon um, Andromache and, and find out um, that she survived and she's remarried. And, and so we learn that, um, that Pyrrhus has been killed. Um, so Orestes has killed Pyrrhus at, at um, the altar of his own father, Achilles. Mm. And I thought... There's some poetic justice, Poetic huh? justice, right? Because, the, you know, we uh, Pyrrhus killed Priam at the uh, altar of, of Minerva. Right. As we learned in book, book two. two. And so uh, it's a fitting... It's a fitting death. It's almost kind of a, a kind of Roman karma mm-hmm. that Pierce gets what's coming to him. And so what I felt so another thing very striking about this scene is that um, I almost expected that Aeneas would say, oh, look at this. They've already started to build a new Troy. Right. Why? I'll just, uh, I'll come in and kind of take over. And, right. And this It's will, like a sub-development, right? Yes. It, exactly right. Right. Um, but never, not once does, does Virgil give us an Aeneas who, who, who has that thought. And not once do we get uh, Helenus or Andromache who invites them. Mm. It's almost like they both know that Aeneas is just visiting here, and Aeneas recognizes that there's something, there's something off about this. He even describes the the Troy as being false or fake. I think mm. I think uh, Lombardo translates it as pretend, mm. right? So um, he uh, comes. He, I think he, he says he comes across Andromache performing a ritual. Alongside a pretend uh, Simois, uh, mm. you know, she's uh, even the Simois cre- is the is the river in Troy. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, right? A tributary of the Scamander, right? right? And so she's even created a, a false river to remind her of home. Mm. And so you and like a Potemkin village, is yes, it? The- right. And so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that you have not seen Stranger Things. No. <laughs> so the, I have been to Epcot, though. What are you talking about? Have you never been to Epcot? What does that have to do with Disney World? What does it have to do with Stranger Things? Nothing, but okay. it has to do with this. <laughs> okay, explain. Well, at um, and then I'll explain know, Stranger Things. Okay, right? at Epcot, there's a miniature of all the different parts of the world that are interesting, you know, uh, architecturally and geographically. Yeah, that's what Andromache's doing. She's trying to recreate in a very false way. It's a small world after all. Yes, you can't go back to Troy. Right. It's done. Right. Forget the past. This is the lesson Aeneas is learning. So my, the, uh, the the Stranger Things metaphor that I that I thought of here is a little darker. Okay. But in that show, there's this place that they refer to as the Upside Down. Ooh. And the Upside Down is kind of a dark mirror image of everything that you see in the upside world. Okay. And so I, I saw that you know, in kind of false Troy as being kind of the, the Upside Down. I'll have to take your word for in it. That, in that... Um, it's very much a, a dark underworld. Yeah, kind of fits the Quint theory. Whenever right. I, whenever I hear um, it's an upside down, all I can think is of is cake. Right. <laughs> I like to be reminded of cake. The pineapple, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, what would the uh, the Latin for Stranger Things be? Ineptiora. 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 There's optus. You know what's suitable or fitting. Yes. Ineptus means it doesn't fit. It doesn't suit. So ineptiora. The ineptiora. St- the Stranger thing. Yeah, things that are not. They're even less suitable than other things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. So um, I was, just a couple of things I wanted to add to that um, to that episode, which we covered uh, you know, at the top of the show, um, that uh, I thought one thing that that Quint, not, I won't say that he missed, but the one thing I could add to his thesis is that, um, you know, talking about our time at the Necromantion, uh, one of the things that, you know, we learned there was that this is one of the places that the Greeks themselves associated with. Uh, with an entrance to the underworld, absolutely, and not only that, but with that episode in Odyssey eleven, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, I, it's very clear that in Virgil's geographic descriptions, we're we're at a point in Roman history where the Romans are starting to associate physical, real geographical places 
with things that happened in Homer's Odyssey mm. in a way that the Greeks never did. Yes. And so I wonder that that so Virgil setting this scene in 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 Epirus, um, he's playing on the fact that his audience would have known. Oh yeah, we, that's associated with the um, the underworld. That's associated with Odyssey Book Eleven. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's quite right. And of course, we both know that the world of uh, this is in our notes here, so I, I can thank you for it. But. <laughs> Uh, the world of Homer is geographically bizarre and confusing. It is. Nobody knows exactly where he is at any given minute. Right. Other than the named places, which are actually few. Yeah. But the world of Virgil, you can follow a very simple uh, linear path for Aeneas's wanderings. Right. We'll see this play out um, in, when we get to book six in like, you know, a year and a half. Right. Perhaps, <laughs> um, where if you compare Virgil's underworld to Homer's underworld, uh, you know, Homer's underworld is is foggy and misty and and, right. and um, uh, very unclear. And Virgil's underworld is like a department store. It's GPS. It's, yeah, it is. <laughs> you got everything there. <laughs> and I think that that same rule applies to kind of the, the whole of the epic. Right. I mean, there's it, it, even in book three, the when Hellenus gives his his prophecy, he's like laying out um, uh, directions. You got to take a left here. Right. It's right? very specific. Very specific and yeah. very very Roman. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So I, I wanted to read a bit of, of Lombardo's translation uh, from this episode as um, as he kind of walks into yeah. into the, um, the the place that Andromache and Helenus have set up. That'd be great, Jeff. Um, remind me who who publishes the uh, the Lombardo translation of the Aeneid? That would be the, that would be Hackett. Publishing. Oh, Hackett! Yes. Is it really? It is with offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, that's that's the one. Okay, okay we're not going to launch right into the ad right well, now. No, right? no. <laughs> Sorry, but yo, no, that that is the one. It's okay. and, it, and it is a fantastic translation. And so um, Aeneas um, is is speaking here. Uh, he says, As I advanced, I recognized a little Troy, a Pergamum modeled on the Great One, a dry creek named after the Xanthus, and I embraced another sky on gate. My fellow Teucrians enjoyed the friendly, friendly city as much as I did. The king welcomed them in a broad colonnade, and they poured libations in the center of a great hall, holding their wine bowls as the feast was served on platters of gold. Oh, very nice. It sounds very, very nice, but... Uh, this idea, he found a dry creek named after the Xanthus. Yes. It's a little Troy. I it's, see. It's a fake river. Right. And so I, Aeneas even recognized, well, I think maybe, uh, you know, a few weeks earlier, Aeneas would have said, this has got to be it. Right. This has got to be what the prophecies have said, and we'll set up shop here. But now he knows this is this is off. You know what? It strikes me there's maybe a kind of an aesthetic principle here. Let's just try this out in the audience. Okay. I, I think people only like miniatures and copies when they're enough different that it's obvious that that's what's intended. Hmm. It has to be self-consciously so. Okay. Right? So things that are tiny to scale, those are impressive. Yes. I mean, that are to scale, but the scale's large, like, you know, 40 to 1. But something that's just a little bit different, it looks like it's trying too hard to be like the original. And so even though it's closer, it's more displeasing. Yes. Because you know it's not the real thing. Yes, exactly right. I'm trying to th- I'm trying to think of an example. Well, I, it reminds me of two things. Okay. Actually, so um, one is is personal. So um, okay, here we go. Well, it, not that personal. Now but we should tell the audience we're both sitting in comfortable chairs in our new location. We are. Yeah. So this is going to be like an Oprah moment. <laughs> Jeff's getting personal. It's a, well, this 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 episode has felt a little bit more Oprah. You know, yeah. it's been a little bit more loose. Probably you know? the location. Right. 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 Um, but when I was uh, when I was back when I was fourteen, and I was starting to play piano and getting really into it, and I, and right. I, I wanted I wanted a synthesizer, right? You know, they were, you know the keyboards oh, yeah. you know, in nineteen eighty. I wanted one of those too, right? And so there was one that I really wanted. Um, it was the Yamaha DX7, which oh, was like sure. the standard. 
but it was way beyond the resources of my parents. Do they have the dog bark? Uh, no, no. Well, you t- push the key and that, it goes roof, roof. No, that's the Casio you, you play in that, that was on sale at Kmart. You didn't but, want one of those? No, I wanted the DX7, which I saw on MTV. Okay. Right. And so I, I wanted that, and, but I knew that my parents were never going to be able to get this. But they got me a, a, a keyboard and it was like a miniature version of the DX7. <laughs> Mini keys and all. Right. Right. And, and, and it's exactly as you stated that principle. It was, it was not different enough. Um, it was too. It was close enough uh, to to be like there. to get it, but but different enough to say, oh, this is just a fake. Whereas if they had given you a an actual toy piano, the the kind with seven or eight keys and it's you know different colors. Yeah, I can remember playing those things. Sure, when I, when I had no other toy, <laughs> yeah. like at the home of a great aunt or something. I don't know. And that's the only toy available. Yeah. I could have a lot of fun with that. Absolutely. And do something that I was actually pretty pleased with. Sure. But only because everyone knew it was not close to the real thing. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Hmm. And, and my other, the other thing that this reminded me of is. I just got to ask before you go on. Yeah, please. Would, would it do the, the hand clapping? Because that was big too. The clap, clap. It did not have any of as those a percuss- kinds of things. percussive sort of uh, filler. It was a real synthesizer where you could treat it like a computer and combine sounds to oh, create your I own see. thing. Well, I'm sorry. And that was kind of fun. But as far as like performing. Tiny keys, mm. you know, my big fat Dutch fingers. Like, what about the uh, the little wah thing? You know, the tremolo. It did have the oh. the modulation wheel. Okay, wah, wah. exactly. All right, yeah. on to your second example. Yeah, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was in Chicago with my wife and my son, and we went to the Art Institute where they have a whole level which is dedicated to miniatures. Mm. And that's the case where it's done right. Correct. They have these 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 rooms and the detail that's done to the rooms, um, but on a scale of like you know. 500 to one right and that's really impressive it is yeah yeah so but this is this is a fake troy this is the the yamaha dx 100 yeah of the uh of the epic world well maybe someone in our audience has a name for that maybe they know what we're talking about there's like a, there's got to be a term uh, for an aesthetic that. or a philosophical principle right i think it's something like um uh you familiar with freud's theory of the uncanny valley yes where you know something is it's it's why puppets are creepy, right? They're, because they're close to human, but they're just off enough, right? Or are clowns? It's why people don't that. like our podcast. <laughs> it's almost entertaining. It's almost, almost educational. Not, but not quite. Not quite. Right. Right. That's right. So there's lots of overlap with liminality, hmm. but we're not going there. No, we're not. No, no we're not. No. no. All right. Speaking of liminality, yes, it's time for the ads. It is. This episode of Odd Nauseam brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, I got the Ratio 8. Dude, have we talked about that already? We have, Jeff, but let's yeah. talk about it again. Yes. Um, I've fallen in love with this machine, and my wife has fallen in love with this machine. So I, I had the 6 for a while, which is a great machine. Solid. Very solid machine. Um, the elegance of the 8. Um, every time I walk into the kitchen, that hand-blown carafe. Yes, it's just, borosilicate it, glass. Borosilicate it's a beautiful thing. You have no need to go to the museum that you just mentioned. No, I don't. Because you've got a work of art right there on your countertop. Exactly right. And I do not want a miniature no. ratio eight. <laughs> if anything, I want a bigger one. A ratio eighth. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah. So I was talking about the colloquium earlier. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And we were out there in this lovely idyllic setting. And these folks, I, I think there's some relationship between coffee drinking and Latin. These folks drink a lot of coffee. Yeah. In fact, uh, Mrs. Noe said the first day, we're going to need more coffee. Yes. And uh, we bought a, a container of decaf. No decaf. Not one cup of decaf was, I can never get this, was drank, was drunk. Drunk, yeah. It was drinked. Drinked. <laughs> Not one cup of decaf was drinked the whole week. Really? 
Uh, but here's the downside. Here's the rub. Yeah. I didn't take the ratio eight out there for the folks. I was folks. just going to ask you, you. I know. Yeah. I, I flaked on it. So, yeah. so we were using some of the brands that we won't name. Okay. And the coffee was good because we bought, you know, good priced coffee. But but I went through a week of no ratio eight. Yo, you missed it. It was withdrawal. Yeah. 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 So when you, you came back to it, it was like a return to Yeah. Ithaca. Saturday yeah. morning, I thought I am really looking forward to this. This great coffee that I'm going to get from the Ratio 8. So reliable. So reliable. Great machines. And um, with our offer here, you, got, uh, you guys, you listeners can get either the Ratio 6, you can get the Ratio 8 and get this great discount. So if you go to RatioCoffee.com, you pick the machine you want. That's correct. And what's our what's our code? Our code uh, is ANCO, ad nauseum coffee, ANCO89. 89. Now, you got to be quick because this particular coupon code is going to expire on June 30. That's right around the corner. It's right around the corner. This this episode is going to drop soon, but you're going to have just a couple days. Now, don't worry. We'll have another coupon code for July, but uh, why wait? Why wait? And yeah. that and that will get you 15% off That's right. on the, uh, the machine you order. Yeah, just one more thing I'd like to say about it, Jeff. Yep. You know, as you kind of get older, maybe this has happened to you. I'm a pretty thrifty person. Yeah. You know, um, Dollar General, 99-cent store. And often in my life, I've bought a cheap product and immediately regretted it. Oh, I, I do that so all the time. many times. Yeah. As I get a little older, hopefully get a little bit wiser, and some things that you use every day and that bring a lot of joy to your, you know, routine existence. Yes. It's worth investing a little bit more in. It's very true. So you know, the Ratio Eight is not a is not a cheap machine. No. But it's a it's an heirloom. It is. It is. It, it's uh it's consistent. It's reliable and it's beautiful. Exactly. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you, dear listener, by the great folks at Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, they've been with us from the very beginning. They, That's right. They've been in business for 50 years. This they, is the anniversary. Exactly 50 years. They got their offices in Indianapolis and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they are the publishers of this wonderful translation of, of the Aeneid by Stanley Lombardo that we've That's been right. reading for the last several episodes. They also have a new uh, Len Krizak verse edition of the Odyssey. Say. Odyssey? No, I'm sorry. Aeneid? Aeneid, yeah. Uh, but we've got Stanley's Iliad. We've got his Odyssey. They have a huge selection of fantastic um, classical authors. Yeah. But is it only classical authors? No, no. I mean, it's all corners of, of, of history and literature from around the world. Um, um, Asian studies. Uh, they, South American. South American studies. Islam. Um, they've, got, they've, got, they've got it all. Right. Um, so, yeah, listener... Uh, take a moment to check out HackettPublishing.com and just go through their immense catalog. You're going to find something that you're interested in. Right. Just yeah. today, just today, I got an online comment on some of our social media Yeah. Uh, from a lovely friend of ours. I, I won't give her name. I'll just say her first initial. It's Donna. And uh, she said, I am so glad I'm listening to Ad Nauseum because I need to, I need to order a bunch of books for the fall semester. I plugged in that coupon code. Fantastic. Yes, exactly. And it is it is a great deal. So Absolutely. Uh, go to hackitpublishing.com. You find the books that you want. You type in, uh, uh, what's the code for this one? It's AN2022. 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 And this fantastic deal. You'll get 20% off everything you order and you get free shipping. Free shipping. You got to put the books into your little satchel though. Oh, Yes. They can't leave them outside the satchel. No, you they got to be in the satchel. Put them in your man purse. Yep. Yeah, exactly. AN2022. That's correct. Um, 50, uh, t- sorry, 20% off and free shipping. Speaking of man purse, Jeff, yes. since we're being a little digressive this evening. Are you getting personal now? 
Do you want to talk about some of our uh, adventures in Italy, trying to find things to hold our belongings? <laughs> you bought a man person. I bought several. Yeah, and they kept breaking. Talking about, you, yeah, you, we bought them. You, you, you cheaped out. Right? I cheaped out, of yeah. course. <laughs> it was no ratio eight. I bought one. It broke. I yeah. stitched it. I threw it away. I bought another one. I remember that. All I can say it was. It, what did we call this man purse? We gave it kind of a. Portmanteau. It was. Didn't we call it trunky? No, we called it a merce. A merce? Oh, sorry. You you don't remember I combining? Don't, you know, man. It's a merce. It's a merce, right? Right. You, it, I do remember the, the merce itself. It was a staple right. in our, on many of our long uh, uh, treks throughout. It was Rome. terrible. You might even say it was a merce case scenario. <laughs> oh man, man, that's a long setup for that. <laughs> but worth it. But very worth, worth it. it. Worth it. Worth it. Worth the ten-hour flight. <laughs> so Hacker Publishing, check it out. All right, Jeff, so as we get back into it mm-hmm. now, uh, Aeneas asks Helenus, a fellow Trojan, asks him for a prophecy. What's coming next? Well, um, here, do we need, uh, I, my first response was, do we need another prophecy? See, you're just not religious enough, how many, how many, How many, how many prophecies Libations. Libations. Omens. Right. Prophecies. We need it all. I guess so. I mean, I guess part of the, the, the point that Virgil's trying to make, these, you know, these guys are religiously correct to a T. They're devout. They're devout, right? In a way that the Greeks were not. No. Um, and so I guess it shouldn't surprise me that Aeneas wants yet another prophecy. And so, and this is, of all the prophecies in Book 3, this is by far the longest and the most detailed. And so Hellenus is a seer, right? This is, this is what he does. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's, all, he's more than happy to give this, this prophecy. And it's very, very detailed. He basically tells them everywhere they should sail, where they shouldn't sail, what to avoid, what to expect. Um, he tells them that, you know, by the time you get to the land that you're going to found this new city... Um, there are certain signs you need to look for. So he mentions this. Um, he says, build your city where you encounter a giant white sow with a litter of 30. There was one crossing the road on the way over here. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't this happen all the time? Well, a giant white sow yeah. wandering across the road. With a litter of 30. 30, right. And there's a sign there, right, by the road that says clearly no littering. Oh, man. And you're on fire tonight. Yes. So look for this this white sow. Um, near an oak tree by a hidden stream, and that's where you need to set up shop. That's right. very specific. That's very specific. Now, I, I wanted to ask you, so but the one thing that I thought, um, not as a kind of a direct reference, but it reminded me of um, Cadmus, where he, yes. goes, he goes to the Oracle at Delphi and, and tells him, you're, you're, when you leave here, you're going to find a, um, a cow. A white cow. With strange markings. Right. And where it, it lays down to rest, that's where you're going to find your new city. That's right. where, where Thebes is. That's where you're going to sacrifice the animal. Yes. found your city. Right. And so I thought, okay, that kind of reminded me of that. But you, I, the symbolism of the pig, did you know, does that does that ring any kind of bell with you? I, 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 I'm, I'm not fishing for any kind of answer. I just thought, why why the sow? Why the, you're not, the, the large litter? Yeah, you're not fishing for an answer on the sow. Uh, I can say that in the iconography of Rome, I'm thinking here of the Arapacus. Yeah. There are poor seen individuals, you know, on the iconography. Yeah. And I think that had I, you know, researched this, I would have found that in fact, uh, hogs, pigs are an important part of Roman religion, extending back into history in a way that uh, they weren't to the Greeks. I see. Yeah. But I, that's all I really want to say about it because I don't want to speak from ignorance. No, I like that. I mean, I think that the fact that it would kind of um, call up kind of religious sacrificial imagery, I mean, it fits right in with everything in this book. And you do it's remember it's, Roman. You do remember it's on the Arapacus, right? Yeah. Some oh, of yeah. The, the tableau uh, they show, that's one of the animals that's prominent there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Um, and so uh, he tells him, 
uh, also remember the the prophecy that the harpies gives them is you, you know you're not your wanderings aren't going to be over until you no you eat your table eat your tables the right. flatitza the flatitza right, the bread bowl right and so you know Aeneas is wondering about that and I love how Helen just kind of waves it away says yeah don't worry about the tables you know the fate has its way it'll work itself out I right. kind of wonder um, about the nature of the elements of the sign. You said it's a white sow with a litter of 30 near yep. an oak tree. Mm-hmm. And a hidden stream. And a hidden stream. So if one of those elements is off or changed a little bit, why does it have to be so specific? Why so much specified complexity? Let's say it's a, a white sow with 29, 29 piglets mm-hmm. and a maple tree. Right, right. Is no, it, no deal? No. no I, like I, I think partially no, revealed stream? No, no. I think no deal. I, I, I think that... But it, none of these things are... None of these things are common... Um, in and of themselves, and the combination is even more rare. So, what kind of information are the gods trying to convey? Yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do see what you're saying. Um, one one landmark is enough. It's right. like when someone's giving you directions, and they say, you know, turn at the at the ice cream shop. It's the one that has. The, okay, I got it. It's an ice cream shop. Yeah, right? good enough. Good enough. I'm out of here. Right. No, um, I know there's something kind of very odd about kind of the specificity of it, but. It reminds me of something that that happens right after this. So, um, you know, so Helen goes through his prophecy and tells him you know, what you're going to see and what you should avoid and all this stuff. But he ends his prophecy by saying, um, worship Juno and worship her first. All right. That's pretty specific, too. Yes. And what happens is um, they start, they sail away. Uh, Helen just loads them up with gifts. You know, Zania uh, is taken care of. And um, they see the headlands of, of Italy, and they get really excited, and they start yelling, Italy, Italy, Italy. And the first thing they see is kind of this, this, this the natural harbor with a temple of Minerva. And so, of course, being religiously correct, they worship her, they offer libations, they pray. Right. And then the next thing they see is a temple of Juno, and it's uh, Virgil writes something, and remembering what Helena said, they worship her as well. Hmm. And so they follow the directions, but they did not worship her first. That's a problem. It's a problem, right? And so I think that. So I think these the, these specific elements. Everything has to be followed to a T, and if it's not, that throws everything off. Mm. So what do you what do you think on the first sighting of Italy? What what did you think they would see? Maybe selfie sticks. Those guys <laughs> those guys selling selfie sticks down by the Colosseum. Right. Exactly. Or they heard the uh, the buzz of Vespas in the right. distance. Right. Right. <laughs> Ripping through the streets of Florence to yeah. run you down. Exactly. Right, yeah, and that's what I think of when I think of that's uh, right. my first sights and sounds of Italy. The first sights and sounds of Italy. Right. I bought a selfie stick. Did you really? Yes. Did you use it? Well, I used it uh, in order to guide the students. It was oh. actually Mrs. Noe's idea. She said, why, why don't you buy a selfie stick? It's only, uh, you know, one euro. And then I it, it telescopes way up, right? Yeah. I tied something to the top of it that was visible, and then the 32 students I was leading could actually see me because, you know, I'm not a person of great stature. Yeah, that, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that reminds me of, of that's a, a tour guide staple, right? Exactly. Yeah, you put the little flag on the top. That's and right. They can all see where you are. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would expect, um, you know, Aeneas and his men would see when they first sight Italy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, but what's also very striking is they don't, they don't stop there. I no. mean, they, they take the prophecy seriously where Hellenist tells them, you know, this is, you're going to see it, but you're not going to be it. Right. Uh, right away. Now, is this is this part of Juno's anger that they fail to pray to her first? I think that's I think that's kind of Im- implicit. I think that's folded in okay. here, right? 
And so, um, like they, they, so they follow the, the instructions, but they, they miss a part of it as well. So it would be like they found a, a, a sow with a litter of 30 by a, a, you know, by a bush. Yes. Right? And near a pond. Right. And Aeneas and saying, No oak tree. And he is saying, eh, close enough. Right. Well, no, if he does that, he's in for big trouble. So Got it. these things have to be followed to the letter. That's right. Yeah. So, um, and then we get to, uh, then we start to see these these um, these Homeric scenes, mm-hmm. right? um, the, the Cyclops the and Cyclops. so forth. And I wondered. I, th- I thought about this too, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. Okay. So, in the Roman conception, the Cyclops island is Sicily, or it's a part of Sicily. It's right. the crags on, on the coast of Sicily. Is um, you know why would the Romans? Uh, why would I don't I don't think it's Virgil here. He's, this is probably you know Virgil's doing things, something that the Romans were familiar with. Um, why place the kind of the you know, the savage cyclopes on Sicily? This you know this part that's you know in Virgil's time part of the Roman growing empire. Right. Is it a kind of a a slight towards kind of that part of Italy that was so colonized by the Greeks? Is it kind of a backhanded insult or? Uh, I don't know if you could call it an insult, but of course, um, all of all of southern Greece is called. I'm sorry, all of southern Italy is called, including Sicily, Magna Graecia. Right. right? There are more Greeks, as I, I love to tell my students, because I think it's such a, a fascinating fact. There are more Greeks living in Italy and Sicily, south of Rome, um, than there were in Greece itself. Right, right, right. In the fifth century and the fourth century, because it's just so much more hospitable. Mm-hmm. So I think that explains a lot of it. It's a uniquely Greek territory. So it makes sense that they would kind of include this very uniquely Greek story. I think okay. the other the other point is Mount Etna. Yeah. Is on Sicily and in some uh, Homeric accounts and so forth, the Cyclopes are the ones who are making Zeus's thunderbolts. Right, right, and right. Mount Etna is associated with the Vulcan and, um, the, you know, Enceladus, the big monster. Yeah. Is, is underneath there. And maybe it's the site of the shop where these thunderbolts get manufactured. Okay. I like that. I mean, it made me think of, you know, so, you know, Sicily today, it's still, you know, it's Italy, but it has a kind of a reputation of being a little bit. Um, loose cannon, but you've been there, right? I have not been to. Sicily. Oh, see, that's right. Neither have but, I. But you know, it's as you know, it's kind of the the home of the the origins of you know, um, um, Cosa Nostra, you know, the mafia. That's right. It's it's, it's kind of has a reputation yeah. as a, law, a kind of a lawless place. In uh, is it Palermo, right? On yeah. the Northwest coast. Yes. Panormus in antiquity. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that's the name of it. But you, oh, you weren't making some. No, kind I wasn't of making a joke. Panormus. Yeah. Does, does everything have to be jokes with me, Jeff? It it, it seems like it often is. Yes. Right. But I thought that you know that it still has maybe kind of that reputation today, kind of you know, lawless, wild. You throw Vulcan into the mix, the the the, the, the rumbling of Etna. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it maybe plausible. It, this it has this ancient identity as kind of a wild place, and so hmm. this, this this fits there. Hmm. Right. So um, they stop off there. Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah, and they spend a, a harrowing night in the woods, um, where they're kind of hearing all kinds of horrible things. And then here is uh, I think the, I, this another scene that I, I think it's Virgil's brilliant, where he kind of makes this callback. Um, once again, the Trojans encounter kind of a a a, a wild, um, a gaunt, a near starving Greek right. that comes rushing he up, runs down to the shore when their boat pulls in. Yes, and he's desperate for help. And so I, this reminded me, of course, of of Sinon. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happened, you know, with the whole Trojan horse episode. Right. And um, also along the coast, also, you know, a Greek who is uh, bedraggled and, and frightening in his appearance yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what kind of drove me crazy at first was, of course, the the Trojans do exactly the same thing. 
is their their first instinct is to offer right. friendship. And you're shouting at the television. Like, no, no, don't. It's do, a trap. Don't do this. It's a setup. Hey, speaking of television, I wanted to mention the the uh, the, the link that you got from a listener about. Yes, I had not known about this this Italian miniseries of the Aeneid. Right. Oh, I want to see this. I do. I do too. Right. And so this was uh, from a couple of my Greek students. I won't. I won't mention their last names. I'll just mention their initials, uh, Tony and Mindy, <laughs> and um, wonderful couple studying Greek with me. And they said, they said we heard on the podcast that there's no screen version of the Aeneid. Well, uh, contraire, a contraire. There, yeah. there is. So we got to see that. We got to see that. I don't know how. I, I mean, I didn't look into it yet, but we got to be. We got to find this. Yes. On even if it's like a, some. DVD uh, that needs a special player for it. Right, maybe with a crank. Yeah, exactly. Put one of our kids on a bike and keep the bike moving <laughs> right. to keep the screen lit. I want to. I want to see. It, I think I want to see it's from like 1970s, 65. I think. Oh, is it earlier yeah, than that? Yeah, something like that. Oh, yeah. Maybe okay. some claymation involved. All right. So they spend a terrifying night in the woods, yes. right after they have uh, glided to Cyclops Shores. Yeah. Uh, and then they approach by this Greek whose name is. Uh, Achaemenides. Achaemenides. Achaemenides, right. who is, he's one of Odysseus's crew, and this is the kind of the tie-in. He claims that, um, so the Cyclops episode in the Odyssey has already taken place. That's right. And uh, they, only about two weeks before, I yes. think. I'm the, trying to remember the time frame. He hasn't been stranded very long. Not very long, right. And, and I did, we didn't mention, but earlier, uh, Virgil tells us that um, Aeneas also... Uh, in, in one line tells us he's kind of been he wanders for a year. Right. So a lot of time has passed, but he seems to be kind of on the heels of of Odysseus. Yes. Oh, he, yes. He's just following in his footsteps. Yeah. Like every spot he's a little behind. Right. So this so this this uh, this guy comes up. And he says they left me for dead. Right. Um, they left me behind. Uh, so he. He's um he's kind of a wild man living in the woods off you know roots and berries. A kind of Robinson Crusoe. Right. And so he kind of to me he had kind of a whiff of. Uh, Philoctetes. Mm-hmm. So when he first sees the Trojans, like it's Philoctetes. Oh, when he, you know, nice, a whiff of Philoctetes. Oh, that's right. He's got the stinky. He's butt. got the I st- didn't even intend that stinky foot. Stinky foot, right? But you know the scene in in I do Sophocles play where he's so overjoyed to see other humans, any humans, any humans. Um, but he's also got a bit another whiff of uh, Elpinor. Right. Yeah. So what's happening here, though, I think, is that Virgil is subtly telling us Romans are superior to Greeks. You think that's what, yes. what it is? Okay. Odysseus abandoned this poor man right. to a monster about whom was Odysseus concerned? Himself only. Yeah. Aeneas will leave nobody behind. Yeah. He's such a, a, a pious hero, right? He cannot leave anybody behind, even this Greek. So Romans are superior to Greeks, not only in military discipline and organization, but they're even superior in sympathy and compassion. Yeah. I think that's the patriotic theme here. I think so. Uh, that And that's... More important than maybe their naivete in perhaps possibly repeating the same mistake that they've yes. decided. Right? It didn't happen, and you're right. Yeah. Naivete and their innocence and gullibility. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps uh, Virgil is suggesting this is um, a virtue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no. better to have a little bit of that. I'd agree with that. Here, a little bit lo- more Lombardo here, and um, this is refers to Echimenides. When he saw by our clothes and weapons that we were Trojans, he stopped in fear for a moment and then rushed to the shore with tears in his eyes and prayed, by the stars, by the gods above, and by the light we breathe, take me away, Trojans, anywhere at all. That will be enough. I know I am a Greek who shipped out to Troy. I admit that I fought against the gods of Ilium. If my guilt for that is so great, cut me to pieces and throw me into the sea. At least I will die by human hands. That's gripping, isn't it? It is gripping, yeah. I'd rather be killed by a human being than eaten by this towering monster. Right, 
Right. And so the, the, the Trojans take them in and, you know, he eventually, um, you know, Virgil mentions he becomes a guide for them. And so he, he he's not, a, he's not another traitor. No. Um, nothing like that. No. Yeah. And then we get the final scene. Uh, we see Polyphemus up on the shore. Right. And Virgil, you know, as a master of description, every adjective, every every verb and noun in just the right spot. Yeah. Can yeah. I read this part from uh, Lombardo? Please do. These words were no sooner out than we saw Polyphemus himself moving his vast bulk down the mountain, a shepherd among his flock. Heading down to the shore, he knew too well a hideous monster hulking in his eyeless dark. Oh, that's great. That's a good translation, that Stan. Good. He used a lopped pine tree as a walking staff, and his fleecy sheep, his only joy and solace, kept him company. When he reached the water, he washed his oozing eye socket out with brine. That's That's got to hurt well, that's, yeah. to put that salt, salt water. water. Right. Yeah. But, of course, you know, you got to fight infection. Yep. Continuing, gritting his teeth and groaning, and then he waded through the open sea, the waves barely wetting his towering flanks. We took our worthy, our worthy suppliant on board and moved fast to get out of there. Yeah. And so as we were talking earlier about, you know, Virgil kind of getting us on the edge of these adventures, like he almost teases what, us with a with an almost encounter right. with Polyphemus, but Polyphemus, he's been blinded. That's right. And it's almost as if Polyphemus is, is oblivious to, right. to the men there, but they know we're not going to hang around. But like Sophocles, I'm, I'm reminded by this description here of some Sophoclean elements, say in the Oedipus Rex, mm -hmm. you know, the very macabre. Did I pronounce that right? I think you did. There's a callback. There's a callback yeah. to the first episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, the very macabre description of um, <clears throat> the death of Jocasta, right? Yes. And, and the uh, the brooches and so forth. And then in the other play, what am I thinking of? Um, where, oh, it's it's Euripides. It's Medea. It's the Medea. Where um, Medea poisons uh, Jason's new bride. Yeah, uh, I think her name is Glauke. Glauke, yeah. And she puts on this this garment and she melts in yeah. front of his eyes. So the ability to describe grotesqueries is an important poetic register. Yes. And, and Virgil's got it. He's got it down. Yes. Yeah, it, it's so good. Um, and so from there, they they, they it's just a, a couple more hops now to to Carthage. And I thought, and so we're getting right right at the end of book three now. Right, because everybody loves book four. That's where all the passion and drama are. Exactly right. That's the one everybody knows. So they stop at the, um, Aeneas says they stopped at one last sad harbor uh, called uh, Drepanum. And here, I thought this is so interesting. This is where his father dies. Yes. And so Anchises has been a, a fairly main character. Absolutely, a fixture. A, a fixture. And even when he's, you know, he's getting things wrong and misinterpreting oracles, I thought it was so interesting how Virgil, he passes by Anchises' death with just a, a, a couple of lines. Well, we, we're going to get to book five eventually, right? Yeah. With the funeral games. And there, in one sense, Anchises gets a whole book. He does. But you're absolutely right that this is... The a, death itself is... We it's don't a even, shocker. It's a shocker. We don't know how he died. What, his old age, I guess? He's He's been lame all his life, ever since his love with... Um, Venus, and that can't have been good for him. Right, 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 exactly. But uh, Aeneas says, he says, he says, you know, uh, again, Lombardo, here, I, who had weathered so many storms at sea, here being at, at Drepanum, um, lost my father, Anchises, solace of all my cares, best of fathers, rescued from such great perils in vain, you abandoned me in my weary hour. The seer Hellenist foretold of many horrors, but not this grief, um, and nor did the, the harpy. Dire uh, Kalino. Yeah, um, but that's, I thought, but, and that's it. I really like the way that the Latin expresses it because, I mean, Lombardo's translation is great, and I won't, I won't read much, but just 
I'm Mituankisane. I lost Anchises. That's it. Well, I mean, there's the description of yeah. of all the things about how wonderful he was, but like you were saying, the actual death. I, I lost, lost my dad. Lost my dad. Mituankisane. Maybe you could read it that it's it's so painful that he can't even talk about mm. it, right? It com- if you compare that with all the detail that he just gave throughout the rest of the book. When he talks about his That's dad. That's a good point. As a good dad, he's, he, can't, he can't talk about it. So this is understatement. Yeah. All of these other things were horrible, like the Cyclops, but the truly horrible things in life are hard to describe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's the best way to take this, hmm. this particular story. Quint probably already wrote an article I'm on sure that, he did. so I don't even need to look it up. Dave. <laughs> yeah. You mean Quint, don't you? I'm talking about Dave Quint. Yeah. yeah exactly. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Not, not you, Dave. You've been impressed with my puns this evening. So. Yeah, you, yeah, I have been. Yes. Okay. Hats off. So, and from there, they make it down to Carthage, and that's where the story ends. And things get steamy in and book four. And get, get a little steamy. That's they, right. They get a little, uh, they get a little uh, uh, tense. Yes, but we're going to have to take a break before that, aren't we? We are. Yeah, we're going to do a, a, at least one kind of uh, different episode that we insert in here, as we promised yeah. the listeners, the audience, that... We're not going to just run right through the Aeneid. We're going to no. take a little break. We are, we are going to take a little break. Yeah. So I think next episode we should take a little break. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, we have to, uh, we got to get out of here. Yep. Got some people to thank. We do. Uh, Dave, you want, before we go, you want to tell us a little bit about the Moss Method? Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Greek and a little bit about the Latin. Okay. So the Moss Method for Greek will take you from? Neophyte to erudite. That's correct. If you have little or no knowledge of the Greek language, sign up with me and uh, this program will help you gain a lot of knowledge. It's divided into four modules. Each costs $325. Each features 40 video lessons, uh, one assignment per lesson, plus quizzes and exams, and of course the office hours. which the, In which the students can get direct access to you. Yes, we yep. interact every Friday. Now we had to take this past Friday off for the colloquium, mm-hmm. uh, but that's the first one in a long time that we've taken off. We get together on a Friday morning typically. We read... Uh, the New Testament, we can read some Homer, we can read Plato, we've done that before, some Sophocles, pretty much anything the students are interested in. If you purchase the Moss course, any one of the modules, you get to interact with me directly. That's fantastic. So the uh, listeners, uh, those interested, can go to mossmethod.com. Correct. Check and out the free instruction. you got a lot of free stuff there to check out. That's yep. right. Yep. And uh, also the Latin. Yep. So the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, the Hans Orberg textbook. Uh, I'm offering a course in this. Uh, unit one is the first nine chapters. And again, uh, you can uh, observe me teaching a live, I'd like to say live studio audience. Like yeah. Like used to do on the sitcoms. Right. Uh, teaching individuals how to read Latin, how to speak Latin, and uh, even how to write some Latin. So if, where would they find this? This is at latinperdm.com slash L-L-P-S-I. Okay. So one of our sponsors, they published this great textbook. We're, we're hooked up with them and we're offering this course. It also comes with office hours. Each week, either Friday or Saturday, we get together. Those who are in the course, we study some Latin together. Fantastic. Fantastic. Excellent. So we got some people to thank. Yes. We want to thank Mishka Fernando, our sound engineer, our engineeress. She puts this all together so marvelously. Thank you, Mishka. Yeah. Many thanks, as always. Also, thanks to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music you hear throughout the episode. Yes. Um, I love Ken's uh, vocal, his, his reaction videos. Yeah, they're funny, they're, aren't they? They're very funny. The guy really knows how to entertain, and what an amazing voice. He, amazing. The guy knows what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, he and, really and he does. Can, he, can do, he can do the deed, yeah. So this week we were listening to um, a little uh, snippet of the intro music. So the intro music 
that great guitar, um, the guitar solo by Scott Van Zandt, that's taken from another song I typically listen to. Hmm. And so as that song, you know, we're listening to it, then we get to that instrumental bridge in, in the middle, uh, my daughter starts doing the voiceover, welcome <laughs> to the ad nauseum. <laughs> it, pr- it was pretty funny. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, hey, listeners, if you want to shout out, if you want to drop an idea for an episode, if you want to ask a question, do not hesitate to write to us. Yes, Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to Dave at Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. And so next week, um, we're going to kind of want to keep them on. We're going to keep them in suspense. suspense. That's yeah. right. All right. Something's coming up in uh, episode 89. We might throw in a couple gurgles uh, before that. Okay. But you just got to stay tuned. Yes. All right. And uh, Jeff, I think you have the gustatory parting shot to take us out this yeah, evening. Yes, this comes from one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, who talks a lot about food. Yes, he does. Who uh, once said, if you are over the age of 18, it is impossible to eat alone in a food court and not look like a serial killer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.